would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, it's John Warlow. So after five years of hosting Built to Sell Radio, I've distilled the secrets from the most successful founders into the ultimate field guide. The art of selling your business, winning strategies, and secret hacks for exiting on top is now available. The art of selling your business is a playbook for punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, you may still be years away from selling, but there are actions you can take now that will make your business irresistible to an acquire in the future. And in this book, you'll get answers to your most vexing questions like, when's the right time to sell? How should I value my business? What are the biggest mistakes owners make when they sell? How do I get multiple offers? How do I attract an offer from an acquirer without looking like I'm desperate to sell? How many companies should I approach? How do I separate real acquirers from tire kickers? When in the process do I reveal my numbers? When and how do I tell my employees? How do I avoid retrading when the buyer drops their price during diligence? In the age-old, how do I avoid an earnout? Along with actionable answers to the questions, you'll also get a playbook for defending yourself against the dirty tricks used by the most unscrupulous acquirers, including how to defend yourself against retrading, acquirers who intentionally set unattainable earnout goals, financing an acquirer's business, becoming a prop deal, strategic pacing, competitors posing as acquirers, accepting illiquid or overvalued shares for your business in lieu of cash, and giving away your retained earnings as part of your deal. You'll also get easy-to-understand definitions of some of the most bewildering terms acquirers use in negotiating to buy your business. Stuff like tipping basket, covenant, downstroke, escrow, indemnification, earnout, Q of E, reps and warranties, churn. I'm just about to throw up just using all this industry lingo, but you'll get a definition for each of them and an easy to understand package. If you order the art of selling your business today, you'll receive a collection of thank you gifts to enjoy alongside the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. You know, they say that we learn more from our failures than we do our successes. And my next guest, Jack Rivlin, is a great example of that. Jack built a successful company called The Tab. But when he went to sell it, he made some fundamental mistakes. And as he describes in this beautifully candid interview, he learned a lot from the process, including how to ensure your acquirer has the money to close, the telltale sign your acquirer is scrambling to find financing, what it's like to meet Rupert Murdoch, What is meant by warranty risk and why you should be paid for it to shoulder it? What death spiral financing is? What a split exchange completion is and why you should consider it a risk? How to use a deposit to protect yourself from a shady buyer? How Rivlin learned the most crucial principle of negotiation? Why you should never reveal who the other bidders are for your business? Why owning a big slice of a small company may be better than owning 
a small portion of a big company and why it's better to travel than arrive. Here to tell you his entire story is Jack Rivlin. Jack Rivlin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. Thanks very much. Tell me about the tab. What is this company? It was something to do with universities and colleges in the UK. Explain to me. Uh, the tab was a, an online publisher uh, specializing in student news. So we published campus online campus news sites at universities across the UK uh, and later the US. Articles written by student journalists who we would train in journalism, um, help publish stories that were you know, relevant to local audiences. Um, and then we monetized through online advertising. Your, your banners and boxes you see on sites, but also directly sold custom campaigns. Got it. And how what did you get this thing off the ground? I understand you raised some money. Maybe walk me through that. Yeah, so it was the business we started at university, three of us, um, and then worked in journalism very briefly. But then we, we started raising money in, in 2012. We did the seed round. Um, and, you know, with probably about a million dollars us dollars of, of capital we sort of launched across the uk and then by 2015 we had the uk market and we were ready to launch in the us so at that point we did a venture round with a, a venture capital firm called Balderton, and then subsequently about two years later we did another round led by news corp rupert murdoch so in total the funding came to about 10 million us dollars wow and what did you spend that on <laughs> Yeah, I know. I think about that a lot when I'm lying in bed at night. Um, the main area of cost was the US. So it was a pretty lean business. We were making a profit in the UK, a small one, when, when we took venture money in 2015. But launching across the US, I mean, it was mainly staff. We hired a lot of people to launch on campuses, uh, travel around, train people in journalism. So we had a global headcount at our peak of about 50 people, which was about half and half between US and UK. And aside from editorial staff, who were all reasonably young people, we also had a, a meaningful size tech team in the UK of about six or seven people. Fantastic. How much of the business did you have to give up, all told, to raise the $10 million? I'm assuming there's three uh, founders. So were you guys a third, a third, a third? No, one of the founders um, stepped back sort of post-university before it really became a proper business. So there were two of us. My co-founder, he left in 2016, right around when we did the, the funding from News Corp. Um, I mean, I think of the business, it was, you know, three quarters, something like that, that, that we gave up. So a lot. It was very dilutive. And it was one of those things where at the very beginning, you're finding yourself saying, um, you know, as long as the pie is huge, I don't mind having a small slice. But obviously, as you get towards the end game, uh, that preys on your mind a lot more and you start to regret taking so much dilution. Okay, that makes sense and, and understandable why you chose to dilute yourself because you, you saw this as a huge opportunity, particularly the US market, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean... I there was obviously a fork in the road where it could have been a pretty small kind of lifestyle business uh, in the UK only, which was profitable. And you know, we'll come on to the sale of the company, but ultimately probably would have sold for more money. 
we thought there was a bigger prize available. There was a lot of VC money flowing into digital media in sort of 2014 to 16, followed by a big uh, crash. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of money around. We felt the US was a huge opportunity because what we specialized in was universities and you know, there are many more students in the US. Campus culture is a really big deal there, more than, more than in the UK. And it's a great media environment. So we felt there were a lot of good ingredients for it. And, and, you know, being young, I think when we went to the US, I was 25, maybe 26. It felt like a good time to take a risk, go for a big exit. And the thesis was that rather than just operating teams with lots of staff, that we would gradually be able to use tech to build a big journalism network that was a lot more kind of self-serve. So it would ultimately be more efficient and it would scale well. And that thesis was proved wrong. Um, quite expensively wrong because that's where most of the funding went, testing that in the US. But that was the idea. And we knew that if that didn't work, that we would be looking at a worse result than if we didn't take the risk. But it, it felt worth doing. Tell me the, like, the operating metrics of the business while you were in the UK before you went to the US. Like, what would top line turnover revenue have been and kind of bottom line profit? You mentioned it was kind of moderately profitable. Can you just give us a sense of the size of the company? Yeah, so I'm going to have to think back here. But in, I think in the UK, I think we were doing about um, half a million pounds in revenue when we went to the US. So that's, you know, about 700,000 US dollars. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, breaking even, but only just that year. Like we hadn't had a full year of, of profit or anything like that. But we were clearly at a point where we were starting to do well. And actually, the in the first year in the US, the UK revenue scaled up a lot. So by the end of that year, it was about $2 million. Um, that, you know, we, we spent some of that venture money just on the commercial side in the UK. So, you know, around the time that we were going to the US, um, you know, we went from about yeah, 700,000 US dollars to about 2 million. Uh, and that was actually the peak of the business's revenue. 2 million. And and yeah. it sounds like the thesis in the US, this self-serve digital offering didn't bear fruit or, 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 or just failed. Um, at, at, at what point did you realize it had failed? Yeah. Um, well, the big kind of macro factor in the digital, media business was in 2017 facebook just turned the taps off or turned them down to send much less traffic to publishers which basically made everyone realize that their traffic they didn't really own it um and they were going to get a lot less so it, it really you know that was kind of the big external factor that meant we had to slash costs um and at that point i think you know i felt this is gonna look pretty shaky i closed the u.s in, in sort of March, April 2018, we closed the US. We actually had had launched another kind of spin-off magazine, which was for young women. I won't go into the detail of it. And we kept doing that in the US until the end of 2018. So it was that year really where things wound down. I'd say from mid-17, it was becoming clear that uh, the tab was not going to work out in the US. The self-serve model wasn't going to work. And the Facebook situation, it just made it much harder. So, you know, really... Looking back, I obviously wish I'd pulled the plug a little bit earlier just to give us more breathing room. Um, but yeah, it was it was around that point, sort of early 2018, where I, I pulled the plug on it. And that's about the time, if I'm getting my chronology right, that you started to think about selling the company. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that was the catalyst for selling. You know, I, I realized the US wasn't going to work. I, uh, 
you know, that was the big dream of how this could become a really, really valuable company. It, it had failed. In the UK, you know, we had much more penetration anyway, both, you know, with the audience, but also on the commercial side. So I knew there was a, a business there that was, you know, had some value and was worth selling. And I felt that was just the natural time. You know, we didn't have much cash left to to grow the UK into something really big. And by that point, you know, I was very diluted. Um, we didn't have a lot, lot of money for the project. I'd been doing it a long time. I was understandably pretty jaded. I think I made layoffs, something like three or four Christmases in a row, which you know, partly says a lot about my timing. Father Christmas. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't fun. This is actually, this last Christmas was my first one and I think, yeah, four years where it happened. But anyway, you know, there were all these factors that contributed to a scenario where I, I was tired, I wasn't massively incentivized, and I felt it was going to be hard to really, you know, multiply the size of the business in any meaningful way. So that felt like, uh, you know, a series of factors, that, you know, it pointed quite clearly towards selling. And I had a couple of shareholders who were saying to me, look, you should just go and find out, you know, is, is there a sale on the table here? Because, you know, it seems like a natural time. So I, sorry, go on. We even asked. No, I was just going to ask you. Did you have any sense of what it was worth? Mm, well, <laughs> throughout the process, that number went down. But no, I, I had shareholders who were not that connected with the media environment, who had really lofty expectations for it. I knew then that we would sell the company for less than what we'd raised. Right. So I knew it wasn't going to be a good outcome for shareholders. I probably didn't realize it would be quite as low as it was. And actually, as, as the process went on, there were various reasons why that number dropped. But I wasn't like, in my mind, a million miles off. Like, it, it sold for a million dollars. I probably, you know, wasn't ever expecting to get more than three. And, and, you know, in reality, was expecting lower. So I had a fairly good idea. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I kind of basically from August till about Christmas of that year, 2018, I kind of kicked around the idea. I, I tried quite hard to get News Corp just to buy it without us running a process because that seemed like the cleanest way. And that was pretty unsuccessful because, you know, there was just no competitive tension there. So what was their reaction when you approached them about that? Uh, I mean, they, they were interested and like gave me a lot of time at high levels of the business. Uh, not quite Rupert. I haven't really seen him much in the last few years. Rupert Murdoch, uh, you know, really the seen, chairman and yeah, founder yeah. of, of Newsroom. Yeah, because yeah, that's how we got the investment from And We got a meeting with him and he agreed to it on the spot, which was awesome. Uh, and What's he like? Was the <laughs> I really liked him. I mean, really, really cool. It was. It, this was like summer 2016 and Brexit had literally, the vote had just happened three days earlier. And my co-founder and I, we'd been at Glastonbury Music Festival and the only date we could get with Rupert was the Monday after. So we came in like kind of hungover and bleary eyed with like, like I had to borrow my friend's dad's shoes because I only had <laughs> sneakers with me and stuff. Um, and uh, he was really cool. He was really down to earth, like um, gave us a lot of time, told us some really interesting stories. Um, and we were there for like an hour. And, you know, he was like really open about what he would like to see happen politically with Brexit and so on. It was a really fascinating meeting. And at one point, my um, co-founder had Rupert's phone in his hand because we were trying to install our app or something. And I was just like, oh, this is a crazy moment. But yeah, I think like we got the meeting because he'd met with our, our one of our investors and he'd said to them, I like the idea, I want to buy it. And um, so, you know, 
there was probably an opportunity to sell there. This was kind of the high point of that digital media bubble before it, it really crashed in the following year. And I didn't want, to, I remember having quite a heated debate with my co-founder because he, my co-founder was preparing to leave anyway. And I think he thought this is a good opportunity to sell, um, you know, tidy way to see it all through. But to be honest, I thought we, we're going to end up taking too low a price here. And there's a huge opportunity. I would like to see the American think through because we'd only been there a year. So I really fought hard not to. And in the end, he agreed. So we really steered the conversation towards investment. And look, who knows um, how that could have panned out. He could have said no. He could have said yes. And then it died on the vine when it came to dealing with other people at News Corp. It would have been a higher risk outcome to push for than getting you know, a few million dollars in investment. But I do think I probably could have sold it there and then for I don't know five to ten million pounds because the price the price of that funding round was like eleven million pounds or something like that it was around ten, which would have left me with a really great outcome far better. Um, so yeah, I, I I kick myself about that fairly often, but who knows how it would have would have panned out? Of course. Got it. So, what happened next? And I'm thinking at some point the lads appear, and I should just pull up and 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 give your medium post a plug and i'll put it in the show notes for folks listening uh, jack well, you and i got connected through a medium blog post you wrote about the sale of your company which reads like a uh you know uh an incredible checklist of things to avoid mistakes to you know avoid when selling your company is a, a beautiful blog post it's really instructional so i'll put a, a link to the blog post in the show notes. But you do mention something about uh, a group of potential buyers that turned up fairly early in your process to sell that you refer to in an anonymized fashion as the lads. Tell us a little bit about the lads. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I guess, the, by the way, this whole part of the story is probably the biggest learning for me. But I'd known these guys a little bit from you know when we were first starting out they had you know run a similar company um they'd moved on they were they were you know they they had they said they had some money available someone mentioned to me that they were buying publishers basically and so i i chatted to them and it all moved like pretty quickly and i you know we we'd been running a process with s some potential buyers we set a deadline asked for the best and final offer with the key terms and they were one of two who bid and their bid was the best. And I think we even negotiated it a little bit higher. It ended up being about, it was about double what we eventually sold the business for. So roughly anyway, so, US dollars. Yeah. 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 So we, uh, it all looked pretty good. And you know, I, I liked them a lot from meeting them. They were sort of my age and we got on well socially, but like there was something a bit odd from the beginning, like they'd be really slow to reply to stuff, be really vague on detail of how stuff would happen. And obviously the biggest point was, did they have the money? And everyone warns you about this before um, you go into selling your companies, you know, make sure that the buyer has the ability to actually transact. And I think I asked them for their, uh, you know, source of how they were going to pay for the $2 million. And they said something like funding is already in place from, and there was a name of the, the fund who were providing it. And I Googled the fund and the first result on Google said death spiral financing. And there was all this like horrible stories about them. 
Uh, and I don't like, you know, a lot of the, the technical detail of debt spiral financing is beyond me, but it's not a phrase that instills a lot of confidence in you in a buyer. But I think by this point, we'd signed exclusive. And it's weird. Like I had experienced people around me. I, you know, my two major shareholders were um, a massive VC firm and a massive, you know, huge media company. I had a shareholder who was kind of fulfilling the role of a broker for me. Um, and everyone raised concerns, but it was like no one wanted to really stick their neck out and say, we shouldn't do this. And I think really more than anything, that's because this was a tiny deal for all of them. Um, so it, you know, they weren't going to try and fight to stand in my way. And I, I don't blame them for that at all. Um, but, you know, we all felt a bit like this is a bit odd because they said they have funding in place. They said they could raise money really easily. I think at the time being completely new to the process, I didn't have appreciation for the distinction between literally having cash in the bank versus funding in place, which sounds incredibly obvious now, but you know, really I should have said, I want to see a bank statement. And if you don't have that, I should have just walked away. But my feeling was they'll be able to close this really quickly. This is a term sheet. Let's just do it. And despite being told about these buyers who string you along and who don't have the money yet, I went ahead with them. And then it was one of those where, the process, like as you went further down, more and more kind of ominous signs appeared. And I should say also that we were still losing money at this point, the company, partly because I had, a, there was like an area of the business, you know, the direct sales bit that meant our revenue figure was higher, but was really loss making by this point. And I knew in my mind, I'd worked out that if I cut this bit of the business out, we can be profitable. But I didn't want to reduce the revenue number and therefore end up with a smaller sale. And other people advised me that, that was the right decision. They were like, don't change anything radical about your business. Now you're in the process. It'll look bad. So I kept it going. And consequently, we were loss making. And I think the date that we were going to run out of money was like 15th of September. And, you know, we signed terms with them in May or early June. So it should have been enough time. But like, they were being really slow. Like the DD was really slow. It took ages to get a draft of the sale. DD, just to find DD for folks who maybe don't know that term. Yeah, the due diligence. So obviously they had some lawyers look at the, you know, all the financial and legal side of the business just to check if there were any massive issues that they would uncover. Um, which was also, it was, it was weirdly like, it felt like there wasn't anything really being done on the DD. It was really slow and non-committal. They did like a bit of a cursory look and then nothing. And I was like, oh, this is great. They're really not going to be too um, stressful because they're being really light touch, which was their message. But everyone else was like, ah, really, you want a buyer who's more committed than that? And there was stuff like that. Like my phone calls would go unanswered for like four days to the buyer, you know, who I had, I thought, a good relationship with. They kept having new reasons about why, how they were going to get the money. And you know, by this point, we're starting to rack up fees. Like they sent a um, sell and purchase agreement across, which was honestly like the most boilerplate, untailored version of one. Um, and, and, you know, the lawyers from our other shareholders were raising concerns. They um, were just being really slow to agree the documents. And I was having to really force stuff through. But we were racking up fees. And it got to the point of kind of no return, or it felt like no return by, I guess, late July, where I thought, we've got to close this because otherwise we are going to go bust. And I was not prepared to go bust. This was a big point of contention with the shareholders is I basically said, look, if, if it comes down to it, I'm not getting a situation where we can't pay stuff. I will just have to let everyone go and like at least treat everyone well. 
but it was a tense time because you're trying to do the best by shareholders you're trying to do the best by staff you're trying to get a good outcome for yourself and try to sleep at night um so it it was uh, just quite a stressful period and anyway in about august i realized we need a, a um safety net here so i basically said to them if you want to continue with the process fine but we want one hundred and fifty thousand pounds on signing because oh sorry i should say about halfway through they wanted to change to a split exchange completion which basically means you sign the docs on one date but you don't get the money until the later dates because they needed an extra couple of months to get the money so by this point i think all our shareholders were like this is a basket case deal these guys don't have the money but if jack wants to see it through let's just support him you know, everyone was just like, this is a horror show. If you're not lawyers. Um, but I was, you know, I just wanted to see it through. And once I got this agreement on the deposit, I thought, okay, well, this is now the best thing to do for the business anyway, because this cash will keep us alive. In fact, that cash ensured that we never went out of business. Um, so, so I agree. So if I'm clear, Jack, the in return for agreeing to a split exchange completion, you got extracted from them 150,000 pound deposit. Yeah. Yeah, which was like huge for us. And that deposit was non-refundable in other words if they, it was yeah, like a breakup yeah, fee if yeah. they didn't consummate the exactly. deal. Exactly. I think yeah. they actually agreed very early on for a 50k one and then we increased it once things were looking hairy and I don't know whose idea that was I'm pretty sure it wasn't mine it was someone on our sides but it was a masterstroke because it it meant that whatever happened it was worth doing the deal um which i have to say didn't make me any less stressed by it but at least i knew that we were going to be able to pay everyone and you know going to be able to make it through to christmas and beyond so in exchange for that they said we want until the end of november to sign which you know i was when i first heard that i think i dropped my cup of tea or whatever i was drinking because we'd started talking in april we agreed terms in may and they'd said, yeah, this will be six weeks. And now they were saying it was going to be six months. But I reluctantly signed up to it. We exchanged. And then they basically had two months. And like the stories about where the money were coming from just kept getting kind of more and more bizarre. They were, suddenly they were going to get the money by reverse take, doing a reverse takeover of a company on the French stock exchange. <laughs> and then it was like, it's it was like, like a like... national, oh God, I know. And the thing is, like, I feel like an idiot kind of reliving it but um, early on, I was being a complete fool. After that, I was just thinking, this is my only option. I've just got to at least get the exchange. And then I was thinking, well, I have to wait until November anyway. So I did. And obviously, when the 30th of November came, they needed an extension. There were new stories about where the money was coming from. Um, and I just kind of got to final straw stage. And so before Christmas, I just said to them, I, I don't know if I said we're out. They actually owed us our legal fees as well for missing the deadline. So I think I said something like, you know, if you pay our legal fees now, then we'll continue talking to you. Otherwise, we are not speaking. And they didn't reply for a month until mid-January, by which time I'd already given up on them and moved on. But um, they then kind of still tried to come up with some way of doing it. And I just gave up. And I think the thing I can't quite get my head around is the obvious assumption that you would make hearing that story is that they were just doing it to drive us into administration and then pick us up for pennies. Administration is, being you know, what the UK referred to as bankruptcy for our US. Yeah, 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 exactly. So exactly. When you can't settle your debts and pay your staff and someone has to come in and deal with it. So essentially they were trying to push us over the edge. And in fact, I'd even had a casual conversation with them about another company they 
bought out of bankruptcy and they said something like yeah we'd had we had to kind of oh, i can't remember what they said but the suggestion was that there was a similar thing going on there and so i assume that's what was happening but the thing is like we were being really open with our cash flow and it was pretty clear if you gave us that 150k that we were never going to go over that edge so i don't know if they were obviously a bit inept as well um it was a bizarre experience and i have to say not one i'd like to relive because you know you you have a lot of sleepless nights especially when (laughs) my main priority was just getting out as quickly as possible you know just getting the process complete uh, and you know it's horrible. Like you're withholding that from staff and so on. It's, it's not fun. In retrospect, what was the first sign? I mean, we all know you know hindsight's twenty twenty. But in retrospect, mm-hmm. if you rewind the tape, what was the first sign that you should have taken as an excuse to get out? Like, what was their first? Yeah, I think really early on, we asked for proof of, you know, this funding and it was just really slow. And I think, you know, oh, okay, here's the first sign. Sorry, I've just remembered. I have another shareholder who I really trust who was not on the board and had kind of stepped back. But I just sent him the um, term sheet they'd received from that was their proof of funding. And he was basically like, they won't have the money. I've seen this before. Explain what, you know, death spiral financing is and so on. Um, and you know, I should have listened to him because I trust his opinion. He's seen this kind of thing many more times, but I, I went ahead with it. And, you know, we did have another offer, but it was much lower. So I, I think that was the point. And that was early. That was like sort of three weeks after their offer. So we're talking sort of May. You've referenced death spiral financing a couple of times. <laughs> what, what is death spiral financing in, in layman's terms? Uh, I don't actually know. I mean, I, I believe it's a form of financing where um, you borrow money as a public company and then the way you pay it back is by uh, creating a lot of new shares that dilute the retail investors who have invested in you so that you're protected and so is the lender. Um, I think, I don't actually know, and it's obviously worth checking, um, but the name obviously doesn't breed confidence. <laughs> Got it. And the other indication, it sounds like in the in the in the terms sheet that you got, they use the term funding in place, and and that was not exactly the same as having the cash in the bank. Yeah, I mean, I would now I've been through this. I would never sell to anyone who doesn't have the cash in the bank. And if I have any doubt about them having the cash in the bank, I'd need to see proof. Um, and proof but, you know, in your mind would be a bank statement. A bank statement. Yeah, I think um, you know the the people we ultimately sold the business to, I don't think I actually asked for a bank statement because I just got to know them so well, did trust them. And they, you know, they did everything they said and various other reasons, but there were a couple of other bids where I did ask for that. Um, yeah. I mean, ideally you're selling to a company that's large enough that their, their cash in the bank figure is publicly available and large. Um, but failing that, yeah, I think I'd ask for a bank statement. So where does the story go from there? It's January 2019. You finally had enough with the lads. Where do you where do you go from there? Yeah, this, this is January 2020. So I'm I'm uh, forgive me, at this yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, I went back to the buyer who'd ma- made an offer um, early on. I mean, I should say they they actually it was kind of an informal offer. We discussed it, and I basically said, oh, I don't think that's large enough. We've got another one from the lads, so let's leave it. Um, but they kind of always said, well, look, if you're still interested, then maybe there's something we can do. So I went back to them 
and they're just like the contrast was so big they're such a pleasure to deal with and so trustworthy this is digital box uh, plc so i went back to them we talked about it and and they they gave me an offer pretty quickly so you you know you'd hoped that it was kind of over then but then after all that news corp who previously said they weren't interested suddenly decided that actually at this price because it was a lot of price it was the price we eventually sold for um, which I think you were would, candid in your blog post. It was seven hundred fifty thousand pounds, or about a million U.S. dollars. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Got right. it. So, can we just? Uh, I just want to make sure I understand, Jack. So, if we if we kind of again rewind a little bit, you're 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 running a process. You're getting multiple bidders. Uh, the lads offered two million. What was Digital Boxes offer at that time before you went down the road road with? I can't remember exactly. It was it was more like, hey, we'd be around the million mark. I can't remember. Okay, it so it's a bit more informal. It might have been the same price. Got yeah, it. Okay. Yeah. The lads blow up and then you go back to Digital Box and their offer is what? Is is seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Got it. And then how did News Corp, I guess their shareholders, so you did you disclose to all your shareholders that this Yeah, they were I mean the they table? were well, yeah, I, I had to, basically, I had to tell my staff and shareholders when the lads deal was signed, right? Because I thought that was going to be it. And it was announced to the market because they were, they were public. Um, probably cut that bit just so as not to identify them. But uh, it was, um, I announced it to, to our staff and shareholders. So everyone knew at that point. But News Corp were very involved throughout. Like I had someone there who was like kind of a friend and confidant who was, leading on their side so we were pretty open about it but they obviously you know at that point there have been some changes on their side i simplified our business following the lads deal falling through i laid some people off um which basically meant that we were you know financially sound we were smaller we were now down to like 10 people headcount um so it was i guess it was a more attractive buy for them and the price was clearly lower and they thought you know maybe this works and fair enough so then they they basically offered a little bit more. It wasn't much more, but it was like about a million pounds. And I thought, okay, well, I guess we're selling to News Corp, which I wasn't against. Like, it's probably a nicer story, uh, but I just wanted to get it done. And I, I, you know, had a lot of faith in Digital Box completing quickly. Anyway, so we did that. And News Corp, that whole discussion sort of took us somehow from January to March, just because, you know, things move slower and... and bigger companies other people to get on side and got to march got the term sheet and you know was ready to get it get it going and then uh the lockdown happened in the uk i think that's like sort of mid-march maybe 20th around then Mm, pandemic and i think this was sort of two weeks after i got the term sheet and they basically rang and said look we we can't do it at that price anymore because of this pandemic you know the stock market had crashed they're really exposed to um, lockdown through, you know, various revenue streams are being hit. Sure. So they were saying, well, look, we will have to drop the price to 750 K. And I was like, no, it's ridiculous. I'm holding firm. And then, you know, it, it went from, well, maybe we can do 750 K to we can't do this at all um, because the internal support for it just disappeared. And I, I actually, you can't bear any ill will about that. Like it was a totally unique situation. But it was frustrating because it was just like another thing. I think like 
my girlfriend said to me that was the moment at which she was like i don't think this thing is gonna happen <laughs> um she didn't say it to me at the time but she was obviously thinking that because it was like this you know i'm fairly candid person i'm not great at being keeping my mouth shut and i would talk to friends a lot about this from the kind of the beginning so 18 months in i was starting to look like i was slightly insane and maybe this thing was never going to happen and i was just vlogging a dead horse um and at that point i was like well there's not really much i can do here like they're not going to buy digital box also were like we need to just wait and see how things pan out um so i just said let's just stop this process for however long it takes let's revisit it in june i think i said told the staff look it's we're going to revisit this because it's just not the right time i have to give them a lot of credit like the amount of patience they showed was enormous um and so i yeah i kind of waited it out and i i'm trying to think what i did during those few months like i didn't really do any talking to potential buyers there were like a couple of others who were kind of sniffing around at this time but i wasn't having very serious conversations with them um and i kind of waited yeah and we just ran the business we actually had a really good few months like you know business was pretty good we were lucky enough you know we weren't weren't having to you know furlough or lay anyone off or anything like that so we just waited out and then in june i picked it up by this point we had a few potential buyers basically like it had slightly leaked out that the lad thing wasn't happening and so one potential buyer heard about us through that another one was someone i kind of knew who got in touch so then we had three potentials and yeah, they all kind of kept giving me really low-ball offers at this stage because they obviously thought, this guy's been doing it for ages, there's a pandemic, he'll go really low. And, you know, I don't think we exactly held firm. Well, I think we did hold firm on price throughout the process, but, like, we, we didn't have a very strong hand throughout the process. But this was the point at which I just said, look, I'm not going lower than 750K because this is turning into a joke. I know the business is worth that. So I just held firm and just walked anytime they offered lower just said flat no uh, which i guess taught me a principle of negotiation which is you're only really going to get the deal you want if you literally will walk away so i did that for a period and then eventually in august i just said to everyone look best and final offer and uh, you know if if it doesn't meet our minimum then we're going to take the business off the market maybe i'll step back and you know stay on the board but like we're not going to keep doing this another three months so i did that and we we finally got our offers and of the three you you agreed to the 750k from digital box yeah so they were all around that level but one of sorry digital box the difference was i like really knew them and trusted them we'd spent the most time with them we got to know them i liked their plans for the business and for the staff i felt like there was not going to be any dishonesty or curveballs or difficulties with funding or anything like that and we probably agreed the most terms with them just because we'd met this first time so for me it was like this one has the highest chance of success they're all around the same level one of them was actually for me you know they offered a consulting deal for me that would have meant financially i would have done better but i just you know i cared so much about just getting it done and having the right people I actually liked the other buyer, but I just didn't know them as well. So I, I felt like it was it was a slam dunk for digital box. So we went ahead with them. And I was right in that respect because they were a pleasure to deal with. So Jack, tell me about the the way your shareholders made out in this 
process. Sometimes when an, an venture capital firm invests, they're, they get preferred shares. So they're kind of guaranteed a preferred return. Did, was that the case with your investment rounds where you had to give them a preferred return or did everybody yeah, just get- I, Again, I, I probably can't go into too much detail because I don't want to, you know, I don't know what the rules are, but certainly some shareholders have preference shares. Yeah. So some people did better than others. Um, mm-hmm. And some people got pretty much nothing, uh, which like is a pretty hard thing to tell people. You know, like I have to say, I thought everyone was really understanding and kind about it. Um, and for, for a venture capital firm, you know, that's having billion dollar exits, it's probably pretty irrelevant. But nonetheless, I, you know, there was a lot of kindness shown. I definitely had a few angry emails from shareholders um, and phone calls. You know, what was the worst? It, it was, it was a. I had a couple of emails that were really angry that were just like, you know, this is a miserable return. You should have listened to me a few years ago, et cetera. Um, and fair enough. Like we made, a, I made a ton of mistakes and it was a miserable return. I think in the circumstances, it was as good as it was going to get. And, you know, maybe there would have been a slight, slightly better deal if we waited three years and, uh, you know, installed someone else who was going to run the business and grow it. But like, I personally don't see it. It certainly wouldn't have been more than double. So I, I don't think it really would have made a, result, a difference in the end. But ultimately, like the failure was it didn't work out in the US. We spent a lot of capital. There was no other move we could have pulled off, I think, that would have had a good probability of, of working out. So I actually think it was you know, really the best time for everyone. But, you know, clearly a very rocky process did not help. How did you personally make out of the situation? I mean, did you get any money out? Yeah, I did. I did. I'm, I'm like the outcome's been been good to me in that I can put something towards my next business. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I I think firstly, you, my assumption is in most of these cases you need the founders to to get some money for their shares because you need them to give warranties that only they can really give, and you know that those warranties have risk. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's right. And, you know, I'm happy with it. I, I don't like, I, I kick myself about not selling the business to Rupert Murdoch, but I think fundamentally, like I've, I've done okay financially, you know, I've got some money to do my next venture and I got experience, which you know, can't put a price on. I read, read a quote. I can't remember who it's from, which is experience is what you get when you didn't get what you want. <laughs> Oh, I like that quote. <laughs> well, what, can you explain what a warrant is? Yeah. So it, or a warranty. I guess the warranty, warranty is like a promise that you're giving that there are no defects with the business. And if that promise turns out not to be true, then you have to refund some of the uh, money that you receive. So, for example, you often warrant that you're not being sued by anyone. And if it transpired that you were being sued, um, then basically the cost would be paid for by you. And, and, you know, some warranties are things that you don't even know about. That's the difficult thing. So when it comes to DD and also the, um, you know, when you're agreeing what the warranties are and what the limits are, you have to have like a really long think and search and kind of investigation into any potential defects with the business, which is quite tricky. Um, but, you know, you can disclose things at that point, which means that they won't be held against you in a warranty. That's helpful for sure. There's a quote in your blog posts, which I love, and I'd hope for you to define it or to give some context around it. The quote is, 
it's better to travel than arrive. Yeah. So actually, you know, the shareholder I mentioned who took a look at the term sheet and uh, said, you know, this isn't going to happen. It's the same shareholder, Jonathan Lander. And um, I actually sent him a draft of the blog and he told me I misunderstood the phrase. So I edited it. So shows what I know. But the basic idea is that it's often, often when you're on the way up, when you're on the journey, um, people will give you the benefit of the doubt about how the business will be a success. So if you tell them a story like um, this business will be really valuable once we launch in the US because the US is a much larger market and the same principles are true in that market as it in the UK, then before you've done it, people will give you the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, therefore there's some hope which will probably increase your valuation because there's the opportunity the business can be really big. Problem is once you've arrived, if the destination is bad and the outcome's been poor, i.e. you've proved that the US is a bigger market, but it didn't work out for you, then you lose all that benefit of the doubt. And therefore you're not getting any of that hope baked into your valuation. So, I mean, in, in this context, you know, it would probably mean sell earlier because you could sell people the story that this business could be really big and they could make it really big. Whereas if you arrive, you've got to actually get that result, which is much harder. Um, and I, I think like for me, the takeaway for future ventures uh, is that, you know, you can either be building a growth business with a really big hope story, in which case think really hard about whether you want to sell it on the way up before you've arrived. Otherwise you need to arrive at a business that is, you know, has nice compound growth and is profitable. I think like landing in between, which is where we landed, where you don't have the hope of growth anymore, but you don't have the kind of nice trustworthy business fundamentals is the worst place to land. The other point you made, which I wanted to tease out for our listeners was the downside of letting the other bidders know who is at the table. Can you walk through what your learning was there? Yeah, I the basically in the in the kind of final stage where we had these three, I think we actually have four bidders, but one didn't really materialize. So let's call it three. We had three who, you know, London's a small place. They had like people on their board had been on each other's boards. It was pretty they were they knew each other. And I basically like let slip who they were to each other i mean in one case one of them asked me who asked me is it digital box and i said i can't remember what i said i think i denied it but it was so obvious point being they all worked out each other's identity and i'm not accusing anyone of collusion um at all but you know people talk and obviously the prices that were offered were pretty similar and i think like that's that's slightly inevitable if you go down that route uh, because everyone works each other out and I don't know necessarily how I would have avoided that. I could have, I definitely could have been more careful about them finding out. Um, but it made me think that I basically had the worst of, of both worlds because I wanted to go public and say, we are for sale. If anyone wants to you know, offer, here's a deadline. This is basically an auction. Give us your final offer and we'll pick you. And my shareholder said, no, this will look like a fire sale. They'll all be able to talk. Let's just keep it private. But we kept it private, but we still allowed the bidders to know who each other were. So I, I felt like we got the worst of both worlds there, where they were able to talk and kind of get a bit aligned on price. I, I don't know. Maybe they would have ended up on the same price anyway. But, you know, everyone says mum's the word. Don't tell anyone 
who the other bidders are, what the prices are. And, uh, you know, probably I was a little bit too open on that front. And, and I, it probably did affect the price. It's such an amazing story. And I'm so grateful for you sharing it. The, the blog post that I've referenced a couple of times, we'll put that in the show notes at builtosell.com. And it's a real, you know, uh, fire, you know, it's a trial by fire. It's I think 13 or 14 points that you learned along the way. So it's definitely worth reading. Where else can people find you, what you're up to? What's the best way for folks who want to reach out, um, you know, digitally and say hi? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to be writing more about the experience of, you know, burning through a lot of cash and going on a journey that didn't quite work out. So if you follow me on Twitter, at Jack Rivlin, just my name, no spaces or anything, that's, that's probably the best place. Fantastic. Well, Jack Rivlin, I appreciate you sharing the story with us. Thanks a lot. Here's John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.